0: Amen. Well, good morning, and welcome to everyone at home or watching with your group. Um, we are, as you've heard, we're at the end of a series where we've been uh, asking, um, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What does it mean for me to love my neighbor? Um, which, which Jesus himself identified as, as tied to the greatest command, to love God and to love my neighbor. Um, we started with, uh, with the story of the Good Samaritan, because the story of the Good Samaritan is told to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And the Samaritans and the Jews, they hated each other, and so we, we quickly learned that uh, my neighbor is anyone. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no natural boundaries that, that pop up where I can draw a line and say, I can, I can love the people inside that boundary, but those outside, I, I'm not, I don't have to, I'm not obligated to love them. And, and we spent time talking about what it means to, to love the, the foreigner, the, the person who, who lives outside our, our borders. Um, we talked about what it, what it loves what it means to love those who are who are a racial or ethnic minority. Last week, we spent time on what it means to love those in the LGbt plus community and this week we are going to go there okay we 're going to talk about what does it mean to love my neighbor who 's on the other side of the political divide? What does it mean if, if I identify in a certain way um, what does it what does it mean to love those who I disagree with and there, i don 't have to even bother right but it's so divisive. We're just over three weeks away from an election. It's so divisive. It's splitting families. There's language. There's, there's honest-to-goodness rhetoric right now about civil war. There are people who believe that they are, they are actually living out a civil war. There's, there's those that, that, that are claiming treason. There's, there's treason. Um, we, we argue about taxes, guns, reproductive rights, uh, schools, immigration, health care. Like, we, we're arguing about everything. And the lines are very clearly drawn, but one of the things that makes that has made uh, America unique uh, in our history, the United States unique, is our peaceful transition of power. It's it's fascinating and it's unique in the history of of the world, and and um, and it's but you know the, all that rhetoric right now, even even that issue, is sort of on the table. People debating whether or not we're going to experience that here over the next few months. And at LCC, um, we we do not endorse any any public figures, any any political parties. Um, We want to ask, what does God have to say to us to inform us when it comes to our our life and civic duty? Um, But we're not about um, endorsing particular political positions. But I have to be honest, today I'm going to break that rule Um, because there is uh, is one person who has spoken out in the last few months that we we need to get behind. Um, I apologize to those of you at home, you're not going to be able to see this video, but the link is in the description of today's video, and I want you to make, I want to make sure that, go ahead, feel free, pause, go to that link if you're at home, and watch this, because it's far too important an issue for us to ignore this morning. First, and then Jane, and then you. Okay?
1: I promise I won't take up too much of your time here. My name is Andrew Christensen. Uh, I live at 1212 Twin Ridge Road. Lincoln has the opportunity to be a social leader in this country. We have been casually ignoring a problem that has gotten so out of control that our children are throwing around names and words without even understanding their true meaning and treating things as as though they're normal. I go into nice family restaurants and I see people throwing this name around and pretending as though everything is just fine. I'm talking about boneless chicken wings. I propose that we as a city remove the Excuse me, I'm trying to, yeah, excuse me, sir. come on. I propose that we as a city remove the name boneless wings from our menus and from our hearts. These are our reasons why. Number one, nothing about boneless chicken wings actually come from the wing of a chicken. We would be disgusted if a butcher was mislabeling their cuts of meats, but then we go around and pretending as though the breast of the chicken is its wing. Number two, boneless chicken wings are just chicken tenders which are already boneless. I don't go to order boneless tacos. I don't go and order boneless club sandwiches. I don't ask for boneless auto repair. It's just what's expected. And then number three, we need to raise our children better. Our children are raised being afraid of having bones attached to their meat. That's where meat comes from. It grows on bones. We need to teach them that the wing of a chicken is from a chicken and it's delicious. I propose that we rename boneless wings in the city of Lincoln. We can call them buffalo-style chicken tenders. We can call them wet tenders. We can call them saucy nugs or trash. We can take these steps and show the country that where we stand and that we understand that we've been living a lie for far too long, and we know it because we feel it in our bones. Thank you.
0: All right, if you can't get behind that, we have no common ground. <laughs> no. And again, for those of you at home, if you didn't get a chance to watch it, please do. My endorsement is firmly, with my tongue, firmly in my cheek, okay? So, but today, um, just as, as last week, I'm going to share these things again and, and a little bit different list here, but just uh, when we talk about an issue as sensitive as politics and, and, and our political beliefs and our convictions as they re- relate to the Christian and the state, um, I, I feel compelled to just say this. Like I, there are things about this that, that I have. There's just as in any subject, but particularly here, there's limits on my understanding. There's things that I I don't have a full grasp of. There will be things that, that are just mistakes. Um, there will be things that that'll be left out. We don't have enough time to have a full, comprehensive conversation about this. But I also promise that I'm open to discussion. Like that, that, again, please don't see this as the end-all, be-all on this subject. It's why is one of the reasons we do this is to springboard into our groups and then for those groups to, 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 uh, to give birth to even other conversations. But I'm asking from you as well, will you give me grace, okay? Will you, I, 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 I'm going to entrust to you my heart to, to, so that you understand that, that um, I believe that what we see in the scriptures today is going to speak to us in our current climate, um, but I am asking for your grace in there. I'm, I'm asking that you don't fill in gaps and make assumptions about me or my position or, or, or things I didn't say, um, would, and then would you not just dismiss this out of hand because something's been said that you disagree with? And, and again, would you consider the whole? Would you consider the whole when you, uh, when you listen this morning? Um, and, and, and the same grace that, that we've shown each other over time and in this series as we've hit different things, um, different subjects that may be sensitive, I'm, I'm also, um, I, I just feel compelled to share something that's, that's been a reality for me about our church, about Life Community Church. I hear on a regular basis uh, in conversations with people or, or something is, that I've said has prompted someone to, to respond to me or reach out to me. And there's a phrase that I hear fairly regularly, okay? And, and the phrase is this. Uh, it, I'm, I've, people have said to me, I'm probably the most liberal person here at, at our church. I've heard it enough now that I can almost affirmatively say, no, you're not. <laughs> like, like there's others, okay, like you. Um, and so, but, but I hear that, and on one hand, I'm encouraged when I hear it, because here's what it tells me. It tells me that people with different, that, that someone views themselves as having like an outlying position on certain things, and yet still feels comfortable here. And yet, it, I'm also discouraged, because because even in the midst of that, people feel sort of they're, like, they're not able to share that. Like, it's, it's, it's knowledge or, or it's information that has to be kept close. And, and with, that, uh, with that being said, we want to be a place. We, we strive to be a place that says, you know what, that we, there, there's folks around here that are going to have different viewpoints on these things, that their conscience convicts them differently from their neighbor. And this is the place where it's safe to work that out. This is the place where it's safe for us to have those kinds of conversations. This is the kind of place where we can graciously disagree with one another, even when, even when my viewpoint may be the dissenting viewpoint. That, that, that the majority may not see things the same way I see things. That this is a place where I know that I'm loved and I'm cared about, even in that dissent. And that so that being said, I want you to hear this morning that that you are not alone in this room, no matter where you land on the, on the spectrum politically. There are folks who are, who are going to be more, more liberal than you, more to the left. There are going to be folks that are more to the right. That's a reality of, of this place, and I'm so thankful that it's true. Just don't believe that you have to accept a certain political ideology to belong here. That's a lie. Okay? You, you are welcome no matter where you land on the political spectrum. The history of of the church and the state, church and politics, is, I mean, thousands of years now, and um, the positions exist on a spectrum, and and if you'll indulge me for just a couple minutes, I'm going to do this very quickly. But, but essentially, when we begin this conversation, there's two extreme positions when it comes to the church and the state. One is the position of separation, that, that Christians have no place in the state that we should be completely separate. That's probably best, we would say, that's like an Amish position, and that's probably the closest that we have. The other is what, what's called theonomy. Theonomy is the, the belief that really, like, the, the biblical law, the Old Testament law should be reinstituted, that that should be the law of the land. Those are... Obviously, those are very extreme positions that that very few, if any of us, are going to hold. But throughout the the church's history, the other positions have emerged. The Anabaptist position leans towards separation. The Anabaptist position, it would be an umbrella that would probably include our our Amish brothers and sisters, but also Mennonite positions, brethren positions. And actually, it's the the movement that many Baptist churches grew grew, um, out of, the Baptist position, the Anabaptist position. Um, so the Anabaptist position fits kind of in this spectrum. There's also mainline social Protestant teaching. This would be uh, things we would associate with Episcopal, Presbyterian, some Methodist churches. But, but mainline uh, social Protestant teaching puts social justice and, and public policy together, that, that the, the church and the state work hand-in-hand hand to try and solve problems. There's also Catholic social teaching. The Catholic church has now a long history, but that history has evolved over time. Um, and in the last couple hundred years, Catholic social teaching would say that, 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 that as, as Christians and as a church, we cooperate with the government where we can, we challenge the government where it needs challenged, we compete with the government. This is probably one where we would recognize a lot. It's why Catholic schools exist and Catholic social services, because they're, they're competing with, with government institutions. Um, and then they would say, where well, we can't do any of those things. We, we try to transcend. We try to live in a way that that is separate from... And then another position would be the principal pluralist, just another way of thinking about this. The principal pluralist is the position that, that, um, that is kind of suspicious of earthly government, probably due to a heightened awareness of, of sin, and it has a very reformed position. So, that, so the idea being that, that sin corrupts everything, and that's going to include, that's gonna include um, uh, the institutions of government, but also in this, there's a mandate. There's a mandate to try and restore what sin is broken. And so the principal pluralist is someone who, who generally like, is fully participating and engaging with government at the local and national level. And, and probably, if, if you examine this, this is probably the position that many of our, of our evangelical churches have taken in the 20th and now 21st century, the principal pluralist position. I share all of that not, not, just to say this. There is a point to those those things in that spectrum. Christians have disagreed about how we ought to engage the, the cultural institutions for as long as there have been Christians. We've disagreed about even how to engage, let alone on the particulars of policy within a government. We've always disagreed. And then even more so, the details in the early 20th century about all of the issues that we disagree about. There has always been disagreement. There's always been harsh rhetoric. There's always been, been fights about these things. And it can be really difficult. It, it just is really difficult for us to, to pin down one position based on, on the teaching of the scriptures for several reasons. One is that the context that the scriptures of the, first, the, 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 the New Testament specifically was written into are so different from the context we live in today. It's just, it's just very difficult to say this equals this when it comes to the political, our, our political questions and issues. The first century world was extremely politically charged. I mean, there's all kinds of politics, both local and national and global. Those things were on the table. But, but the New Testament authors and Jesus himself, they seem to be fairly indifferent to that stuff. Right? And yet at the same time, everything they were saying was, was so political that Jesus became like a political martyr. He was killed in, 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 in a political, he received a political uh, death sentence. And John the Baptist, that we'll, we'll get a little insight on today, the same thing. He was killed in a, what amounted to a political squabble. And so there's we live in this tension. We live in this tension where, where the, the scripture's, Acknowledge the, the reality of the politics around them, that the, the political stories of the day are interwoven in the stories of the scriptures, but but it's it's almost as if Jesus was not almost it's as, it, it, it's as if Jesus was resistant to entering into and engaging in those political fights, those political battles. Oh, he said things, but we almost have to read between the lines to get clear statements. What we're going to do today, is, if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Luke's Luke, Luke 7, Luke's Gospel, and I'm, I'll put it on the screen for you, but we're going to take a look at a passage that has gives us some insight, but remember, please remember, when we look at this, the, the things that come out of this were things that, 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 were, that were unique to a first century audience, but then the meaning of them transcends for all people in all places, all times. So we're going to take a look at this story in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 18. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. And it says this, the disciples of John, this is now John the Baptist, the disciples of John reported all these things. There's the stories leading up to this, Jesus had been, been ministering and healing in, in, um, in his ministry. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Okay. So, so John the Baptist, okay, sort of this, this, um, this prophet who preceded Jesus, who announced the coming of the Messiah, John the Baptist has, his, has disciples. He has people who follow him. He has students. And those students... They, they come to Jesus. He sends two of those students to Jesus, and they ask this question, Are you the one? Now, we've said this throughout this series. Okay? That is the question. Okay? That's a the, the, the question is on the table. Is Jesus the one? Okay? All the other questions, everything that comes after this, is going to relate back to that primary question. Is Jesus the one? So they were asking this significant question. Verse 21, in that hour, the the time where they asked, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the, hear the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. It's interesting the way Jesus responds to this. He's given, a, he's given a kind of a yes no question, right? Are you the one? Are you the one that, that's been promised? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one who's going to fix our problems, who's going to solve our problems? It's just it, it's information, it's, it's, it's just a factual question. But Jesus' response is to show them who he is by what he does. There's no in here, there isn't a direct answer. Yes, I'm the one. It's take what you've seen and go back to John and tell him what you've seen. Now, in, in the first century context, particularly if, if you were a, a Jewish rabbi, you would have understood the context. Because the Messiah, the one who is promised, it's written all throughout the Old Testament, but probably most clearly in Isaiah 29, that he's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to heal the sick. Okay? The, one who, the one who's promised is going to do these things. He's going to he's, he's preach good news to the poor. There's, a, there's, a, there's an answer to the question in who Jesus is, but there's also implications for what he's doing. Because there's something about this mission that, that sort of tips the scales. Okay? It turns the system on its end. Because, you see, the way that the Jews thought about this was that the one who was coming was going to enter the halls of power. They liked the part about healing. They liked the part about evil spirits being cast out. They liked those things. Those things made sense, and when that person showed up, there was was a movement to try and get them to the seat of power, someone who could overthrow the government that was oppressing them. And Jesus says, yeah, this message isn't really about the halls of power. This message is actually for the poor. It's for those who are, who are disadvantaged. It's for those who don't have power. Now, it's also for those who do, okay? But it comes first to those who really don't have the social influence, the political power to do anything except accept it on its own terms. What a fascinating what a fascinating reality in this and then he ends with that or this section ends with that line and blessed is anyone who's not offended by me I think this is the word offended there is a little interesting to translate it's it's not necessarily like my, my feelings are hurt or you've you've upended my my sensibilities in a way that I'm offended the way we think of offended it actually sort of means like like blessed is the one who who's in line with what I'm doing and what I'm about blessed is the one who's whose, who's m- their mission in life, their calling sort of matches this calling. Blessed are they, right? And that comes right after this line about preaching to the poor, going to the weak, taking this message to those who are disadvantaged. He sort of says, I'm, I'm, I'm here on a mission, but it may not be the mission you think I'm on. He says, I am, I am the man, like the, the signs, the, the, the evidence is present, present. I'm the the man, I'm the answer, I'm the one. But I'm here about something deeper than just the power structures of the world at present. Obviously, what Jesus has to say has implications there. But he says it doesn't begin there. This begins somewhere else. Keep reading with me in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? That's where John... Uh, John Baptist, his ministry, was out in the wilderness. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Catch this. This is, this is political speak, right? Because here's what he says. Did you go out to see like someone soft and gentle and kind of flimsy? A reed shaken by the wind? Someone who, who wasn't going to speak up? Okay. Did you go out to see someone dressed in fine clothes? He goes, look, you don't go into the wilderness and come across someone who's, who's like probably like going to be cast out of, of civilized society. If you, want, if you want fine clothes and you want high society, you go somewhere else. Jesus is speaking into there's There is a political critique of, of, of the, the ruling class of his day. That they didn't go out with the people. They sat in castles. They weren't out with the poor. They were, they were separated from them. They were removed from them. Okay. So there's there's a critique there. He says, "Look, you don't. The answers that you're seeking, you know, they're not they're not found in in the power structure. They're not found with the the, the Herods, the kings of the day. They're not found with the Romans, who just separate themselves from you and don't don't mingle with you." Keep reading. Verse twenty six. What then did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. John did what John was born to do. Keep keep reading, verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Do you see this? Okay. So there's this dynamic that takes place. Jesus says, John, John's the man, right? Like he says, like, you listened to John rightly. You, you were baptized by John rightly. That was the right thing to do. He goes, but John was, was a step that leads to something else. He's the one who prepared the way for something else. But in, the, in this, he says, he says the kingdom of, the, the, that John's baptism, like he, Jesus draws a line. He says there's a, there's a right place to be. And notice who celebrates this, the sinners, and who rejects it, the Pharisees, the power structure. There's, this language is charged, okay? This language is charged. By endorsing John, Jesus is speaking into the climate of the day, and he's saying that the power structure is, is screwed up. The power structure has things backwards. The, the power structure that, it, that we all recognize says that if you want power, you have to get it and take it. You have to, you have to win it. You have, you have to impose it. And Jesus, Jesus, without necessarily like saying that that's illegitimate, as in it's not effective... What he does is he says this. He says, that's just not the system that that I'm about. That's not what the kingdom of God is here to do. The kingdom of God doesn't doesn't go to the, the powerful. Think about the life of Jesus. Think about even his birth and the travelers from the east who came. Where did they go first? To the natural place, right? To the palace. But in the palace, they didn't find this newborn king, okay? At that point in time, he probably had had to flee for his life with his family to a foreign land. He he didn't come from a palace. He wasn't wasn't placed there. That's just not the mission that that he was on. Keep reading with me, verse 31. So then Jesus says this. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Now, given the fact that he's, he's addressing this this dynamic um he's talking about this this sort of power structure to what then shall i compare the people of this generation and what are they like he says they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another we played the flute for you and you did not dance we sang a dirge and you did not weep it's he, he he's he's saying like there's we tried to gather you together and maybe the marketplace isn't necessarily the right place for us in our culture to think about this with children but think about the playground um in 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 my job, I've I've taken on the duty of playground duty once a week for our third and fourth graders. It's fantastic. Okay, it's I, it's it's not really playground duty as much as it's chase the ball that they kicked over the fence duty. Okay, but it's fantastic. But this kid this has come alive for me in this school year. Watching kids because here's the, they they only get about twenty minutes of recess when I'm when I'm there or, or it's not it's just recess it's free time, and I would guess that these kids spend about 18 minutes of their 20 minutes arguing about the rules of whatever game it is they're trying to play, right? That's what they do. It's That much has not changed in thousands of years. What Jesus is saying is we, we've tried to get everybody together. Like, like there's, there's, a, there's a message to try and get people together, but we are like kids on the playground pointing and shouting and arguing about the rules of the game, and then no one's winning. No one gets to play the game. No one gets to do anything. He goes on in verse 33, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, or Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all our children. Okay, So listen to what what Jesus has to say here. Okay, He said, look, you're like kids on the playground screaming at each other about the rules. That's, that's, this is how he described the, the climate of the land he lived in 2,000 years ago. Right? Does it sound familiar? Okay. You're like kids on the playground screaming about the rules, and we can't, even, we can't even get down to the business of enjoying our time. And he says, look, John does one thing. He goes out in the wilderness, he gives up food and drink, and you call him crazy and say he has a demon. I show up and I'm hanging out with people. I'm eating with them. I'm drinking with them. And you say equally, which by the way, the punishment for gluttony and drunkenness in, in their culture would have been strong. You say, I'm a drunk. I'm a glutton. We can't win here, he says. We can't win. And then he, he ends with this line. Or this section ends with this line. Yet wisdom is justified by all our children. That's that's tricky Bible speak, okay? That's, so so it's, 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 a, it's a proverbial phrase, okay? It's a proverbial phrase, meaning it's a phrase of truth that said that would, that would commonly be held true by the people who heard it. But for those of us now, we probably need a little explanation. Because the word wisdom there is, is, is this idea of the truth of God. God's truth, the reality of what is true about God, he says, is justified. Justified is a theological term, but essentially what it means here is that it's proven right. It's proven correct. It's declared right by all her children, by those who follow in the way of God's truth and do it, by, by what its output is. This, is. this is entirely consistent with the rest of Jesus' message. You know a tree by its fruit, right, by, by what it produces. You know, the, you know the truth of something by what comes out of it, by what's produced from it. So the wisdom of God is proven right by the way that, that those who have come in contact with it, by the way that they are, who they are, by all the children. Nice story, right? <laughs> Nice story. Um, but what's this got to do with, um, with my Republican or Democrat neighbor? The person on the other side of the political divide from me, the person who's got, I pull up to their house and they've got the sign in the yard that gets my blood boiling. Okay? Or the person who posts all of those things on Facebook that just ugh, get me worked up. By the way, just leave Facebook. You'll be happier, I promise. Okay? Just leave it alone, at least for the next 23 days. You might want to go a little longer. Okay? Take a couple weeks off and then quit altogether. But I'm, I'm going to propose four things that we see in this story that help us as we navigate our current climate. Okay, Four things that we see in this story that help us navigate this climate. And the first one is this. Here's what was understood here. God is in control. Now, again, please, it, it's cliche, I get it, but cliches become cliches because they're true. And people have repeated them so many times because they're truth. You see, Jesus doesn't feel compelled to give an answer other than what they could witness. He sort of says, like, the answer is up to you. Am I the one? The answer is up to you and what you see. See, we often feel compelled to to justify with our words, to align with certain ideas, to argue on behalf of, of positions. And there's, I think there's fear in that, and we'll, we, we'll say a little bit more about that in a minute, but I think there's fear in that, and there's fear that, that the next blow that we have to endure it, 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 that in the midst of fighting for our side is like the, the death blow. And so I have to come out fighting too. It's what had developed in first century Palestine in the time of Jesus. The parties were divided. They, they couldn't see eye to eye, and so there was constant rhetoric back and forth. And Jesus says, I'm not going to engage in the rhetoric. I'm simply going to show you what it's like to live in tune with God. And then you decide. Because God's in control of all that other stuff. The passage that they would have known that, that, that we need reminded of from Psalm 2, it says, why do the nations rage and the p- peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He looks at all of that back and forth, and he just sort of says, it's it's kind of comical, all of that. Um. Our friend, Jen Michelle, um, she, she shared with us during our series on hope. Uh, her, her husband, Ryan, and their family were part of our church years ago. One of the books that she's written is called Surprised by Paradox, and she, she talks about this. I, I would encourage any of you that this sets off something in you to take a look at, at this book. But she says this to close out um, one of her chapters. Um, she says, every president, every king, every prime minister has a term limit. Death ends every reign except one. Politics are not the means of establishing God's kingdom, and no president has messianic promise. Paradoxically, the kingdom of God is a seed, a stump, begun small, subjected to suffering, then filling the whole earth with its branches. When God's people stand, they sing not hail to the chief, but hallelujah. Now, whatever wherever you fall on the, on the political spectrum, no matter what, what, how you're compelled by conscience to vote, to not vote, to who to vote for, which, which positions to stand for, keeping perspective, keeping perspective that God is in control, that no matter where this goes, that's the starting point for any of us who follow Christ, to understand when it comes to the political questions of our day and the political battles that we are witnessing, God is in control. Now, again, you may be compelled to engage in those spheres and to to work for the common good, and Lord bless you in that, but please do it with that perspective. The second principle here that I think is really critical for us is that that God's kingdom is first. God's kingdom is first. Remember John's question initially, are you the one? Are you the one, Jesus? Jesus. Are you you the one who's going to be the answer to our problems? Are you the one who's going to to set things right? Are you the one that we've been promised? Matthew writes about this this in his gospel, and we, we, we recognize this verse, most of us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things are going to be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see, Put, put, putting first things first. And I'm not here to say that, that the, the questions that are being asked in, in, a, in our political debates, in our, t- in our political things, are, they don't matter. I'm not saying they don't matter. I'm not saying they're inconsequential. But I am saying this, that the perspective of Christ was an eternal perspective that said, sacrificing my soul for these things is, is, a, is a place we're not willing to go. We have to allow Christ and his kingdom to inform our politics. And let's be honest, our tendency is to get that backwards. We just have to acknowledge it. Our tendency is to find an ideology that we believe can inform our faith rather than allowing our faith to inform our political ideology. We have to keep these things rightly ordered. I've got to keep moving. The second thing is this, that obsession with today's politics and power is corrosive. I don't know how else to say it more plainly, but the derision and, dim- and dismission of the Pharisees that, that Jesus is speaking against, the way that they, that they dismissed those without power, it was, it was related to the political games of power that they witnessed from the Gentile rulers around them. They were playing the same game that they they despised the Herods for, that they despised Rome for. They were playing the same game when it came to their own people. The focus on it had become getting as much power as we can get for us in our situation. There's just a reality to this. Look at what Jesus says that Matthew records again in chapter 20 of Matthew's gospel. But Jesus called called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and gave his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus warns us, but he also shows us. He says, look, if you become obsessed, and this, this is in response to the question about who is going to be greatest. When, when Jesus establishes his kingdom, Who's going to be the greatest amongst his apostles were, were arguing this? And he says, we can't play this game. We can't play the game of zero-sum power. It's corrosive to our souls. And he also seems to say that the way to avoid the corruption of power is to purposely serve, right? Position myself as a servant. Be willing to lay my life down, not take up my, the fight. For myself. There's nothing easy about it, but it seems to be the answer. And that answer is love. Again, cliches are cliches because they're true, right? But it's love of my neighbor that compels me. Not not winning, not coming out on top, not being the one who gets to call the shots or set the direction or feeling like I had a part in winning. Remember where we started this entire series on, on being a neighbor? was with the story of of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it it didn't matter in the story, as we saw a few weeks later, as we saw last last week, Jesus says, look, that salvation comes through the Jews. The Samaritans didn't have the right answer. But in the story of the the compassionate Samaritan, it didn't matter that they had the the wrong answer. What mattered is the way that they lived, the kindness that was shown. And which one of them was a neighbor? Well, it was... It was the Samaritan, the one who stopped, the one who was kind. They were the neighbor. They loved. Remember this last verse in that section? Wisdom is justified by all her children. You see, I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter which side you land on. If the way that we do politics is hostile, is rude. If it dismisses my neighbor, if it creates an enemy of someone that God has called me to love, it doesn't matter if I'm right with the information. Wisdom is justified by our children. The truth is justified by the way we live. Often read at weddings, but 1 Corinthians 13 is just about the way we love our neighbor. And listen to the way this is described, and as you listen to it, would you think about our, our political fights and battles of the day? And not someone else, but the way we view this. Love is patient, it's kind. It doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears, it carries all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. I I feel like I just read a passage describing the exact opposite of what we experience, of what I feel in my soul when I come into opposition on these things. So following the pattern, I just want to wrap up with this. Following the pattern, we said that the model that Jesus gives us is a model to stop, to help meet immediate needs, and then to hang in for the long road. So what does it look like in this if we stop along the road when it comes to these political battles? Um, What does it look like? And I sort of edited this one as well to, to enter into the pain of others, but in this regard, I... I think oftentimes we're, we're motivated by fear when it comes to our political angst. We're driven by what we're afraid of. I, I actually sent a very, this is very scientific, it was an email I sent to some people that I know land all over the political spectrum, okay? It was not scientific at all. But I just said, what are you, what are you afraid of? What, like, what, what fears do you have that drive the where you land Someone said they were afraid of losing their way of life. Another said they were afraid that people like them weren't valued or wouldn't be valued. Someone just said, I'm, I'm afraid of losing my wealth. I've I've accumulated it, and that's my greatest fear. Someone said that they this was this stunned me. They were afraid that that if if they were treated unfairly, that they wouldn't get a fair hearing. They were, they're afraid of that, and that drives their decision-making. And more than one person said this. They are presently afraid that our country won't survive its current trouble. That the, the position they're taking, the direction they're moving, what what the fear that motivates their, their ideology is that they're afraid that our country isn't going to survive. And by the way, I received that same answer from people on opposite ends of the political divide. There's fear. Do we, can we, do we catch that? A lot of the screaming, a lot of the hostility, a lot of the angst, it originates with our fears. And believe me, (laughs) a lot of it's, a lot of, there's a lot of marketing that goes into playing on our fears, But if we can manage, if we can manage to keep the perspective that God is in control, God speaks to our fear. He speaks to it much better than any elected official ever can. I've got this. Seek my kingdom first. All that other stuff is going to get taken care of. When we encounter our neighbor, if we can stop in that perspective and understand They're just as afraid as we are. They're just as afraid as we are. They're they're real. It's complicated. It may seem so simple in my head, but it's very complex in in, in the web of relationships that we live in. The second thing is that we get people the help that they need, focusing on immediate needs. Remember, the the immediate need is, is this underlying fear. People are afraid. If I can give my neighbor the love of the gospel, the, the, the thing that Jesus gave, that my, my, my hands, my care for them, rather than a well-reasoned, strong argument. I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place for strong arguments. That's not the point. The point is, what's the immediate need? What's the immediate need with my neighbor? Do they need someone else to yell at them? Do they need someone else To point out why they're wrong? Or do they need a neighbor who cares enough to stop and engage? Engage them at the level of their life, at the level of their fear. This is what we have in the gospel. That's more powerful than the best political position. And then return over time. See it through until health is restored. Did you notice the language in love about its patience and endurance? It's so easy, I'm so guilty of just dismissing those who disagree with me. The word just becomes such a dangerous word in these conversations. Well, they just, they're just, fill in the blank. It's so easy for me to take that route. I no longer have to take them seriously. I no longer have to really truly engage with them. I get to just dismiss them and walk away. And in so doing, I get to become a Pharisee, right? I get to be the one who's high and mighty. I get to be the one who's superior because I've got it figured out. But what if, what if over the next 60, 90, 365 days, what if we said, no matter who's elected, we as followers of Christ refuse to be divided along these lines. We refuse to allow anything but the Spirit of God to speak to us when it comes to m- me and my neighbor. That we refuse to, to diminish. That we refuse to just brush off people because they didn't see it the way I do. That we refuse to to draw battle lines, and rather embrace those made in the image of God who may land somewhere else on these things for me. What if? What if we do it? Not pointing our fingers at others out there and asking them to do it. What if we do it? I want to close with just this. This is Ephesians 4. We, we use this all the time around here because, my goodness, it's so timely. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is for all of us. We've all been called to this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, there is something that ties us together that is much stronger glue than anything, than any power in the world to separate us. We have one God, one Savior, one Spirit, and we put him in his proper place so that we can love our neighbor who may disagree with us. And pray, right? And mean it. Pray not just for those who you agree with, pray for those that you disagree with. Pray for those that you wish weren't elected. Pray for those that you believe have all the wrong answers. Pray for them earnestly. If you you don't have personal contact with them, Use the weapons available to you in the spiritual battle. Pray. Let's pray now. God, um, we just ask for your your guidance. We ask for your your hand. We ask that you would um, that you would speak to us. Um, we have fears, Lord. Um, maybe fears That we haven't really even considered what we're afraid of, and um, Lord, we ask for your your comfort in those fears. We ask for your your peace in the places where we're um, where we're presently. We feel like enemies. Where we feel like there's hostility. We ask for patience with with others that that we may not see eye to eye with. We, we ask that, um, that your kingdom would be the thing that, that drives us, that, that, that the unity that, that you have, Father, Son, Spirit, would be the, the unity that, um, that we experience with one another. And um, God, we ask again for your, your hand on us for, um, and for your, your strength moving forward. And we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.